Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. So good evening, everyone. We're so happy to have Dr. Nikia Grayson and Dr. Stephanie Devane Johnson here. We're just going to discuss an amazing initiative that Dr. Grayson has uh, spearheaded in Memphis, serving her community there. So um, let me just go ahead and open up a the floor and ask Dr. Grayson to introduce herself and kind of what inspired the work that she's doing in in Memphis. Okay. How you doing? Um, (laughs) So I'm Nakia Grayson. Uh, I live in Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, I'm a nurse midwife uh, and the clinical director for Choices Memphis Center for Reproductive Health in Memphis, Tennessee. And I think that really what has inspired me to do this work is, it's a long story. I'm trying to, I'm trying to uh, make it short. Well, I was working on a project. Uh, I have a, a master's in anthropology, specifically medical anthropology. And I was working on a project uh, that I, in my final semester at University of Memphis, that was a project that was around infant mortality and really address, trying to address infant mortality in Memphis. And it was a partnership between the March of Dimes and some local Black churches called Community Voices. And I was asked to evaluate the program. And so what's really interesting is I had absolutely no interest in maternal and child health. Uh, All my work had been in, you know, sexual and reproductive health, but specifically in like STDs and STIs and uh, HIV. And um, so uh, when I went to be a part of this uh, project and start talking to families about, you know, infant loss and the losses that they had experienced. It really touched me. And I started to dig a little deeper. I wanted to figure out why this was happening and where the gap was in the community. And, and even in talking to older black women in the community, uh, they talked about their experiences with, you know, prenatal care. And some of them had actually used midwives. And so they kind of took me down this path to kind of research about what midwives. You said what? what? What year was this? This was in 2009. This was in, yeah, like the spring of 2009. And it really made me start to want to understand what was missing in the community. So uh, I started researching and reading more about midwives. And I actually actually have a friend who is a, is a nurse midwife and I called her and I told her about the project and it kind of just happened from there and I realized that you know it was a gap in the community and it was a need and that midwives especially black midwives were seen as you know like these caregivers and healers uh, not just people who care for people when they were pregnant but just care for their community and I wanted to I wanted to do that I wanted to fill that gap and so I decided to go and become a nurse midwife. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how long ago did the how how specifically did the choices clinical center come into being? Yeah so I had work, like I said, in sexual and reproductive health in the community and Choices is a reproductive health clinic. So I've always known of them and and some of the folks that work there. We've kind of worked on different projects together. The then executive director, her name was Rebecca Terrell. She actually just retired in December. She had heard that I was studying to be a midwife and uh, she approached me about uh, helping to create uh, a comprehensive reproductive health care center there in Memphis. Choices is not a new clinic. It's been around since 1974. And but it really started off as a first trimester abortion clinic and really did that probably for the first 30 years, but then recognized that there were other needs in the community and other needs of the patients that they were seeing. 
and added services. So I came on in the spring, summer of 2017, literally right after I graduated (laughs) and Mm -hmm. um, started our midwifery services there. And so, like I said, we are a comprehensive reproductive health care clinic. And really, we meet all of people's reproductive health care needs. And that was really important to us. And so a lot of the patients that we were seeing for other services, like our, uh, we have a transgender clinic, we have um, a regular wellness clinic. A lot of those patients that we were seeing wanted to stay with us once they found that they were pregnant and wanted to continue their pregnancy. And we wanted them to stay with us. And we also recognized that midwifery was a very powerful model that could really help to address the maternal and infant morbidity and mortality issues we were seeing in our community. Yeah, so that's, I'm glad that you mentioned that because, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, as you know, was Black Maternal Health Week. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of discussion with Dr. Shalon's project about kind of leveraging midwifery, the model of midwifery to address Black maternal mortality. So how do you how do you envision uh, the role of the midwife with addressing the Black maternal health crisis? I think that midwifery definitely is a is a viable and really important option in terms of addressing uh, Black maternal health. Right, like I said earlier, you know, midwives before in our community were always seen as healers and community health workers. And I think that that is just part of our training and part of really what calls you to midwifery. Midwifery is a calling. It is a very different way of caring for people and recognizing them in their full humanity. And really, it is a holistic model of care. And so we're not talking about just you know provide, providing them with prenatal care and providing them, you know, just birth services. We're talking about caring for the whole person and caring for that pregnant person is paramount to us. Not just, like I said, not just that that baby, but caring for them, mind, body, and spirit. And I think that that is what's going to help us to really change how things are done in our country. We know in terms of, you know, the maternal uh, mortality issue that we're facing, that one is not new. And this is something that we've been experiencing for a long time. I'm you know, really happy that it's getting the attention that it deserves. But we also know that there's been a huge problem with access to care, as well as issues of just structural racism and violence that many Black and brown people experience. And so I think that culturally congruent care is really important and definitely us raising and training more uh, Black midwives can definitely help to address that issue that we're seeing in this community. I want to unpack the culturally congruent care that you uh, just referenced and kind of get a bit more granular, like what does that mean? But before before I ask you that, I wanted to see if Dr. Devane Johnson can weigh in on how midwives are part of the solution to the Black maternal health crisis. Thank you. I co-sign and echo everything that Dr. Grayson just said with midwifery being a totally different way of being trained. We're trained in the normal to detect the abnormal. And so there is no reason for a physician who is trained exact opposite and who would rather be in the operating room potentially cutting on somebody needs to be at a low risk, low intervention, vaginal delivery. And that's where midwives come in. And I worked in two different states. I'm in Tennessee now and I worked in North Carolina. And for some odd reason, we are seen as a threat to some physicians, to the OBGYNs. They're going to take our patients. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And midwives don't see it as that. Like, I don't want to go to the OR. I hate the LR. I don't want to do instrument deliveries. I don't want to do C-sections. I want to do labor support, well woman GYN, all of this. And so when the midwives reach our scope, and it goes beyond our scope, that's where the physicians come in at. And it could be such a beautiful collaboration if more physicians would see it as a benefit and not a li- not necessarily a liability. And now that I am not at the bedside anymore as far as delivering, but I teach at Vanderbilt in the midwifery program, 
and we are doing our due diligence to accept and matriculate out and graduate more midwives of color to look like the population for which we serve and which they'll probably go out and serve as well. So a lot of what you had mentioned kind of looks like it it delves in terms like collaboration and diversifying the workforce. So let me kind of go back to Dr. Grayson and kind of understand when you use the term culturally congruent care, what is that? What does that mean? Well, I think that what's important is is that people feel comfortable with their providers that they that they see themselves and their providers that their providers have the same cultural beliefs, values, community values, understand them in terms of their background and their culture. And that's really important to be seen and to be heard and to be understood in that way. I know in the past, well, not just in the past, in the present, uh, Black midwives specifically make up a very small number of all the midwives in uh, the country. And so to be careful by a midwife, nine times out of 10, you're not going to have a midwife that looks like you, especially if you're coming from the black or brown community. And so to, to be with someone to, like I said, who understands your culture, your values and your cultural experience is really important. And uh, it brings a different element of trust to, to a relationship. I think with the paucity of black midwives, there's a natural disparity between like who's likely to care for you. So what do you think? I guess, how do you bridge that gap? Because it's not like you can kind of create, like it, it will take time to build up the diverse workforce. So what is something that, that you believe could be done now in order to address uh, some of the mistrust? Yeah, it, it it will take time. But I think that one of the things we have to do is really work in educating providers. Right. And I think that we can't wait till they graduate and start practicing to provide them with education around structural racism, you know, implicit bias and things like that. And really for them to learn how to partner with their patients and really honor their patients. and honor their their beliefs, honor their values, and uh, really to see them as an expert in their care. And so, you know, we talk a lot about patients under care and shared decision-making and informed consent. These are all the, you know, the buzzwords that we're hearing right now. But is it really truly patient-centered care? Is it really true shared decision-making? And and so when we can start to do those things, we will see, you know, improved outcomes and definitely more trust uh, between patients and providers. But I think that that starts in the education model. You know, I think mm-hmm. that you can't, like I said, I don't think you can wait till they have graduated and then have a different expectation for people. You have to model for them what is right. And, and a lot of times that's not happening. And so definitely provide an education for all levels of providers, not just physicians, but yeah, not just physicians, but physicians, nurses, midwives, everyone who comes in contact with patient and patient care. Yeah, that's that's such a comprehensive perspective. And and I guess we're currently developing kind of a curriculum for medical students because there's a lot of misconceptions, you know, early on. And I think dispelling some of those learned misconceptions, learned myths is something that I I totally agree, starting at the medical school level and really teaching the history of how we got to the point where we are. I remember even even as a a Black provider, I had one patient. I mean, all of of my patients are high risk. I mean, they are challenging. They, They are extremely courageous because for a lot of patients, they are willing to risk their lives in order to enter into motherhood. And I take care of some of the most courageous mothers that, that I believe exist. Alongside that, I remember caring for a mom who was uh, African-American 
and she had multiple medical problems, uh, such as so much so that I was concerned that pregnancy would be uh, life-threatening to her carrying a pregnancy. But that being said, in the spirit of like the, sh- the shared decision-making, we decided that I was going to walk with her and, and help her through the pregnancy. But a part of the consultation was, well, after we get through this pregnancy successfully, what are your plans for future? And I had offered a, her to get her tube side. And it wasn't something that was coerced, you know, at least in my opinion. But from her perspective, she kind of felt, well, you know, is this something that you ask all your patients? And I have to admit, I was not privy to like some of the historical context of black women and sterilization and why, like why that could be, you know, particularly offensive to her. I'm thinking, I just want her to, to not potentially risk her life, you know, if, if that wasn't her desire again. But understand the, his, the historical context, like you mentioned, having like a culturally congruent way of approaching patients requires that we know the history of how we got here. That, that's so important. You know, I think it also, for me, I knew that history, right? So that's kind of what brought me to the work. And so... Yeah. But it was also very frustrating to me when I was in training and uh, nursing school mm-hmm. and then uh, in midwifery school, uh, because there are so many biases and stereotypes about people and uh, so much misinformation. And really, people don't understand the history of reproductive oppression. Right. And that this is not mm-hmm. necessarily something that just happened in the past, but that continues to happen now. And without that full understanding of uh, what people have experienced in terms of having their reproductive autonomy taken away from them. Right. It's very hard for people to understand. And so one of the things that I do and that we definitely do in, in our clinic, especially when we have students, is we really do talk about these things. And I'm an avid reader, so I like to read a lot. So I have all these books and lots of reading materials for students. And actually, I, I uh, teach an anthropology class at the University of Memphis called Culture, Sexuality, and Childbirth. And a lot of the reading materials comes from that class. And even the midwives that work with me, they're like, we do not know how you find time to, to read all this, yeah, to do it. Yeah. this material. But It's so important. It's almost like a deconstruction of yourself and what you learned and a reconstruction. And so Mm -hmm. how do you choose to practice? Are we choosing to to really be uh, social justice minded or are we really just practicing medicine? And so that's really important as well. And so like for me, like I said, that that really was what led me to this work, really that social justice piece of really addressing um, the inequities and the racial oppression that our community has faced. And um, I was always very aware of it because of the work I've done in the past. So it really does inform who I am and how I choose to practice. But I totally understand about asking the patient about, you know, if they want to get their tubes tied and really how how she may have felt as well. And so even in our work in terms of like offering birth control and offering different devices, you know, birth control devices, I'm very oh. intentional about making sure that I offer people everything and uh-huh. um, really asking them, what is it that you want from this? Uh-huh. You know, And so I think that's really important because especially even here in Tennessee, we have a huge problem with with coercion in terms of certain birth control devices and options. And so one of the great things about our clinic is that we offer them all and they can get them for free. So, you know, in the beginning it was like, oh, we need to make sure that, you know, the Paragard or the Morena or the Lata is available to people for free. And I was like, why are we just making sure those are available? You know, those yeah. ones that have to be provider placed and provider removed, why can't all of them be for free? You yeah. know, and so yeah. and then in educating the staff and educating 
our executive director about why, you know, that could be perceived as uh, harmful to our community. She agreed. Mm -hmm. And so we worked really hard to then provide other options for free as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to pivot, and I want I want to start with Dr. Zane Johnson, and I and I know you recently did a GMA, a Good Morning America interview about during Black maternal health, and I believe the headline was about how the employment of of midwives and doulas to address the maternal more, you know, morbidity and mortality crisis. And you would, you would mention that a lot of what you do is really recognizing and treating the normal. But a lot of the maternal morbidity that Black women experience is rooted in the abnormal. So how do, how, how do you envision midwives and doulas, not that they're the same, but they're in that they, kind of have a similar approach to holistic care, how how do you leverage, I guess, providers that are trained in the normal to really address the abnormal and 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 what faces uh, more te- black maternal morbidity? I like, I love this question, Dr. Lister, and it reminds me of a lot of the patients, and I do um, morbidity and mortality review, they were normal. Pregnancy, delivery, and then something went awry. And so it's the awry that was not detected by whoever they were seeing. And I see that a lot. Like I say, I still practice and a Black patient will come in and normal intensive the whole pregnancy, but then deliver then she gets some postpartum preeclampsia. They do mag for a little while and then comes back in. And and I and I look at her and I was like, you look horrible. And she's like, I feel horrible. And I was like, you're going back to the hospital. I don't want to go back. I feel like I'm getting on their nerves. And I was just like, no, you're going back. We're going to do our due diligence and make sure, you know, throw the kitchen sink at you, do all the labs, do everything that we need to. And so there is a place in healthcare for the doulas who can notice the warning signs postpartum, severe edema or, you know, a headache that won't go away with Tylenol and monitoring, knowing what the normal blood pressures are postpartum if a patient has a blood pressure cuff at home. And the midwives seeing the patients and even talking to them on the phone and not poo-pooing, oh, you're okay. That's normal. How do you know it's normal? Let's bring them in. Let let me, and I'm like the telehealth, like during COVID, like I don't know how people did it because I am a, I need to see you, feel you. I have spidey senses that start going off when (laughs) I'm in the presence of somebody and I can just tell. And that's what I teach my students. I was just like, bring somebody in, look and examine and they're describing it. I've had so many Black patients here recently who have been having erroneous other things, maybe GYN. Oh, you have yeast. Oh, that sounds like BV. And nobody ever looked. And it was neither of the sort. And I was like, has nobody ever looked at your bottom? Not like you. You were in there like a monkey trying to find stuff. And I was just like, well, hey, you say something's going on. I need to figure out what it is. And I found something. And they were just like, thank you. Thank you for one, listening to me too, and for looking and not just, oh, that's what it sounds like. So here, take some daflucan or go get some monostat or something like that. And sometimes the art of midwifery and of medicine, you've got to lay hands on and look at people and touch and feel and see exactly what's going on. There could be other variables that are going on that you can't detect telehealth or over the telephone that being in somebody's presence, you might can pick up on. So in your estimate, when you, as you have sat on the review committee, would you say that the, the majority of patients, at least Black patients who suffer morbidity and and, mortal, and ultimately mortality, you think it's, it, it starts out as more of a normal condition that, that could have been 
prevented if there were, I guess, I know they're preventable, but I guess I'm wanting to understand, in your opinion, how the midwifery model would be, I guess, positioned to address the most common causes of maternal morbidity and mortality that lead to mortality. Again, and Nakia can can tag in again, to me, it's we know the normal, but we when you know when something's not normal and when something's not normal, you need to draw a lab, get a diagnostic test, do something to figure out what exactly is going on and not just, oh, well, it's not necessarily abnormal, but yeah, I've seen that. That's That to me is where the disconnect is. If a patient, they know their body's better than anybody. And, <laughs> and if they're telling you something's not right, then you need, we need to listen as healthcare providers. Okay, tell me a little bit more about that. Uh, you know, and I'm not going to stop until I feel as though I've done my due diligence and done everything. And if I have to send them back to triage into the hospital 50 times, sure that she's still alive the next day, that's what I'll do. I think also that our care is a little different because it's, right, to me, right. it's relationship-based care. We get to know people right. in a very different way. Right. Right. Our visits are usually longer and uh, they talk to us about a lot of things that they would not necessarily talk to their OB about. I know uh, in the past, I have a really uh, great collaborating physician. Her name is Dr. Ashkia Pinkney. She's at Regional One Health. And she actually had a young lady who wanted an out-of-hospital birth. And she sent her to see me. And shortly after the visit was over, I called her. I was like, wait a minute, this young lady has this, 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 this these issues. And she was like, wait a minute, I've seen her like five times. How did you get that out of that one hour long visit? And, you know, I think that definitely we're looking for different things. We're asking them different things. Uh, But it is a really, I want to get to know you and really understand who you are. And that's really important. And I will say that a lot of the patients I do see, and a lot of the people in the community I do see, they are sick. They bring, they're bringing other healthcare issues with them to the clinic. And a lot of times they are probably not the best midwife, midwifery patient, right? But we end up keeping them because we end up collaborating Mm -hmm. with maternal fetal medicine because we recognize that healthcare is very fragmented and they can really get lost in that shuffle. And so it's really important for me Mm -hmm. that we, we be a bridge for them to the care that they need. And like Stephanie said, we see things that they don't necessarily, that may not be caught in a, in a shorter visit with a, with an OB, but, but yeah, it's really important to listen, but yeah, we have several patients who would have probably normally risk out. I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, what, what is high risk at this point? It's like this relative in the building, right? Everybody's like, oh, she has uh, gestational diabetes. Okay. You know, they're like, does that rule her out of our care? Uh, no. Right. So <laughs> it, it does become <laughs> what is what is our risk, and especially with our relationship with maternal fetal medicine. Uh, and I always shout Danielle Tate out. And I believe she's on the mortality uh, review board as well. Uh, Danielle Tate is phenomenal. And <laughs> I tell everybody, I shouldn't tell people, but I call her like all the time. I send her a text or call and, and she always answers. And so I'm yeah, so appreciative yeah. to her and the work that she does, but also her willingness to partner with midwives. And she sees a value in us and the care that we provide. But I would send people to, to Dr. Tate and they would get there and they would tell her that they weren't leaving my care. And I'm like, I'm sending them to her so that they could be ruled out. And she's like, well, they said they're not leaving. So we need to figure out how, you know, we're going to care for them together. And we have, and that's what we've done for the last few years. And like I said, to me, it really is important because our healthcare system is truly broken and people can get lost in that shuffle. And uh, one of the things that we are able to do is to bring all of the team players together and really make sure that they are getting the care that they, that they need and deserve. I was just getting ready to ask you if you could kind of paint the picture of what an ideal working relationship, an ideal bridge would be between the institution and community partnerships. What would that look like? Uh, the bridge between institutions, you know, 
I don't know. Or I think you that, feel like it can it, that 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 is it a viable option. Like say, if um, you mentioned Dr. Tate, and I know her very well. She is a phenomenal. But I guess like it it can't start or end with one person. So how do you kind of like populate where the where the system is like that, where there's a collaboration? Yeah, you know? you're right. It can't start or end with one person. But I think that even with what we are are doing at choices is that it has to be imagined somewhere, right? And so uh, someone has to be brave enough to think it up and then try it. And because honestly, even when I came to choices, and like I said, I was I just graduated and there were no opportunities for midwives in our community. They couldn't go work at an OB office. They couldn't go to Methodist and and work there or have privileges there. So it really started off with this idea that this was possible. And and how did we want to imagine how care was being provided? And so one of the things I guess that's really great when you're at a place that's small enough to do it is that <laughs> you can you yeah. can imagine something and like, okay, I'm going to do yeah. that. And when it doesn't work, guess what? You don't do that anymore. And you try something different. And so a lot of what I was able to do also was really based on the relationships that I had built in the community, not just with patients, but also with physicians. Like I said, with Dr. Pinckney, who is our uh, collaborating OB now with Danielle Tate, because Otherwise, with, you know, with Dr. Danielle Tate, with Dr. Lynetta Anderson, with Dr. Linda Moses, they were the ones who helped me and really answered the call when I needed help because I was a provider providing care alone. And so when I got into situations where I knew that that was out of my scope of practice and I needed to send them somewhere, those ladies always answered the phone and really helped to make sure that my patients got what they needed. And so what what we are showing is that it is possible. It is possible to have this type of collaborative care. And so now we're saying, okay, how do we scale this up, right? And so I hired uh, three more midwives <laughs> and they now have privileges at the hospital as well, which before was not a pathway. And now we've created that pathway and made that possible. But I think that, by continuing to work and grow together and to learn from each other and to get together and make those plans and say, hey, this is this is what we're seeing and get together and and talk about patients and really start to understand and trust the midwifery model uh, has been invaluable. So now we do have an opportunity to be in the hospitals and provide that continuity of care for our patients who have to go to the hospital because many of them don't necessarily uh, fit the fit the you know bill to be a out of hospital candidate, but now we're able to continue to care for them because we have built this pathway and we're building this relationship and showing that the model can work. And uh, I think that's what's what's going to really change it. So I do think that I do think that we can have that infrastructure where uh, the medical institutions really do support midwifery care and really have the collaborative care with midwives. Dr. Devane Johnson, same question. <laughs> I, I, I totally agree. And some colleagues of mine in North Carolina that I'm um, collaborating with, there's three Black nurse midwives. I teach midwifery. Jackie McMillan Bowler teaches black, the nursing students and Venus Standard teaches the family practice residents. And so it's, Jackie teaches the nurses who might potentially want to be doulas, who might potentially want to be nurse midwives, and then I get them. And then Venus is training the new residents in toilet deliveries or, you know, to get your hands off the perineum and labor support and all that good stuff. And it's all working together, hopefully, so that when these physicians graduate, like Nakia said, we can't just start once they graduate. We need to start them as baby, baby medical students and baby residents. This is midwifery. This is low risk. This is everything doesn't, every patient doesn't have to be on Pitocin. You don't have to break everybody's bag of water. Having them see that and we emulate that. And I taught at UNC for eight years and I taught the medical students and the residents and I loved it because they were just like, oh, she needs to be moved to the bed. Why? 
Cause she's getting ready to deliver. Hey, okay, and we get ready to deliver this baby right here. So glove up and however she feels empowered and and everything, and that's what we get ready to do. Yeah. Oh, but I know a vagina this way. Yeah. <laughs> and it would be so funny. I know. That orientation can kind of get get kind of funny, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, it's okay. We'll figure it out. And this is what we're doing. We're not moving her to a bed in the thought of me or doing any of that. And I have heard back from some of the residents, it served them well. And they appreciated their midwifery education. And some have even, you know, graduated Mm -hmm. and finished a residency and work at practices that have nurse midwives. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a process. It's not going to put it in and change overnight. Um, we got to get the workforce. We got to get the students. We got to mm-hmm. build the infrastructure to to make this possible. Yeah, I love that though, uh, Stephanie. Because when I was a, you know, when I was a labor and delivery nurse and would be in the hospital, all of the so called difficult patients were the ones that were given to me, <laughs> and I didn't find them to be difficult at all. They just you know, had in their mind how they they wanted things to be. And I was I was very accommodating. And I remember I had a patient on all fours in the bed and a resident yeah. came in and they were like, wait a minute, what are you doing? What are it's okay. <laughs> she wants to, she feels most comfortable in this position. She wants to be like this and we're going to push like this, you know? And so a lot of them never really even see unmedicated birth. So that, that can be really hard as well. And I think that, I will say that, and I'm going to speak for Dr. Pinkney, she is learning a lot from us as we learn a lot from her, you know, and so fortunately, one of the great things about our relationship is that Kia comes to the building probably two or three times a month and she'll come over and we'll eat and talk and we'll talk about very specific things. We'll talk about specific cases or we'll talk about, you know, just different learning opportunities. We'll talk about suturing or we'll practice suturing together or do you know many different things together and so she'll have patience and she'll call and she's like okay listen this is what's happening with her what is it that I need to talk to her about again you know so it's it, it is really a partnership and she's tell she tells everybody now I'm not as quick to cut them <laughs> I told her I'm I appreciate that because uh, usually if I'm on the, on the on the floor with her I'm like do not cut them Pinkney let's let's figure out what we can do for them so but it's just, yeah. I think that it's just yeah. so much that we can always mm-hmm. learn from each other, you know, and 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 that's important. And normalizing, yeah. normalizing mm-hmm. normal physiologic birth. It can happen. Yeah. It can oh, happen. Yeah. I've seen it happen. I've watched it happen. Everybody doesn't have to have pit. Everybody doesn't have to have yeah. all this. And that's a having worked at an academic institution, you got to clear the board, board sign out every 12 hours. You need to get this bag of orders or the next shift is going to talk junk about the other shift. And I can't have her still here. They left her here. And it's all this. I felt like unnecessary undue pressure, but that's that medical model. And yeah. I'll sit on somebody till the cows come home as long as they okay. And the baby's okay. <laughs> it's like, like what yeah. are we rushing? So it's changing, I think, the culture. Yeah, but I think also what's really important is because, like I said, for us at this point, (laughs) what's high risk? We don't we don't know anymore. Right. So we have a lot of people who come to the clinic who have been medically mistreated and to have to sit with them and really process that is a lot. And so it makes it harder for them to to trust the advice that you give if they have been mistreated in the past. And so many of the women that we see come in and want to share their stories. And I find myself apologizing. I'm like, well, I'm not apologizing. I didn't do this to you, you know. So, but you know, I find myself apologizing for our just for our profession as a whole for medicine, right? Not necessarily for midwives, but for all of us, the nurses or the physician assistant or the physician that they saw that did not treat them well. And so I think this is really important because I have had I've had patients who absolutely refuse to go to the hospital 
and just they were like, I would rather just die right here. I was like, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> you're not dying on my watch. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I think that makes probably the biggest case for respectful care because there's really a through line between mm-hmm. a patient's lived experience and and their willingness to maybe seek the appropriate level of care. And a lot of times, like you said, there what is high risk anymore? A lot of times people aren't necessarily seeking providers based on the level of training or, you know, of, or their risk of pregnancy. It's based on their lived experiences, you know, in the past wanting something different and something more compassionate. So I think that probably yeah. makes the biggest case for why respectful care mm-hmm. needs to be done in all at all levels, at all places. And it's not necessarily a midwifery form of care, but that really Absolutely. needs to be embedded into how we care for patients just overall. Like that's Yeah. I agree. I think that it's just part of our model, right? And that that part of our model has made us successful. I do think that it is it is an education piece. And that's why I said it's really important that we get them before they become providers, you know, and really also ask people, why did you choose to become a provider? Right. You know, I, like I said, I teach um, undergrads at university of Memphis and, you know, many of them tell me, Oh, I want to do this. I want to do this. And they're in my anthropology class. And I tell them you, should not be a provider. <laughs> you you should not provide anybody care. Okay. <laughs> your thoughts, your way you see the world, you should not provide anybody care. And so, but I think that's important, right? Why do people come to this work? Why do we choose to do this? And you know, and I'll be very honest, and I tell even my patients this, I don't know too many physicians that didn't want to be compassionate, right? That didn't want to care for the people that they they see, I think that a lot of times it can be very overwhelming. We see too many people, and you know, it's just a whole lot of things going on. But for the most part, I tell them, you know, I, I don't know too many physicians that say, "Oh, I just I just want to do it for the money," because there's a lot of it's a lot of hard work in it, you know. But I think that we have to really change how we educate people, and like like I said, you know, being a labor and delivery nurse at a teaching hospital. I saw it. I saw it. I mean, where residents treated people like they were a number, like they were a body. I'm coming in here. We're going to do this. This is what we're doing next. You know, and it wasn't, it wasn't compassionate. They weren't listening to people. And so even now, like I said, when we have patients, I always ask them about their birth story. And I have a very good friend who I was her midwife last year. And she She's a nurse. She's an antepartum nurse in a high risk hospital. And I remember when I met her, uh, I was in midwifery school and she had this beautiful little baby and his name was Preston. And we we're talking and she immediately started telling me about this horrible experience she had and how she had to have an emergency C-section with him because she was not listened to. She knew something was wrong and has said it repeatedly and was not listened to. And so she ended up having to have an emergency C-section. And she told me, she's like, if I ever get pregnant again, I will never do that again. And I want to have a out-of-hospital birth. And I want to be with a midwife. And so five years later, <laughs> she gets pregnant and she called. And um, I see a lot of people who want to have a trial of labor will do a VBAC. And uh, she was like, I'm not going to the hospital. I'm having this baby at home. I was like, okay, let's figure this thing out. You know, so uh, fortunately, she was very knowledgeable because she's a nurse. She's a, and a part of nurse. She knows all of the things as well. But her one of her very good friends is a midwife. And she called me. She was like, she told me she's coming into care. You have to help her. You have to help her rewrite this birth story because it was so horrible the first time. I was like, okay, I'm going to do what I can. And so uh, she ended up having one of the most amazing births. And her husband is a videographer. So he like videotaped all of this and made a video out of it. And people started calling me. They're like, hey, I saw you on this video. I was like, 
Yeah, I was there, but she knew what she wanted. She knew what the odds were. She knew what people would say about her choice. She knew what the VBAC calculator said. She knew all of those things. And she still made her choice. And she believed enough in herself and enough in the care to have a successful vaginal birth after her cesarean. And she did amazing. And it's that that's the reason I do it. I mean, after that, I was like, okay, it was wonderful to help somebody to overcome trauma from the past with a new story. So tell me about the labor gardens. I was perusing the website and I was really curious about that. The labor gardens. So, yeah. So when I started at Choices, uh, we had talked about building a birth center in Memphis and really building the first one in Memphis. And so you know, our original building that we were in was, you know, a 6,000 square foot clinic and Mm -hmm. we had quickly outgrown it. And so we imagined this 16,000 square foot building that has three birthing suites as well as this labor garden. So we have a new 16,000 square foot state-of-the-art building that has three birthing suites with these amazing birthing tubs. Mm -hmm. And we have the outdoor Mm -hmm. courtyard where people can go and meditate or walk or sit or do whatever they would like out there, but they're all off of the labor suites in the building. And so, yeah, you know, Rebecca Terrell, that was really important to her. She said, like, I want people to have space where they can walk. I was like, we're in downtown Memphis. <laughs> where are you talking about? Where are they going to walk, Rebecca? You know, out in the parking lot? She's like, no, we need to make a pretty space for them to walk. And so this yeah. labor garden is Literally on the second floor is a second floor courtyard off of all of the labor suites in the building. So, uh, yeah, so they can walk outside and they can get some fresh Mm -hmm. air if they want. And we have ballet bars Mm -hmm. all down the hall so they can walk them down the hall if they want. We have like Swedish bars in the in the room where they can squat and uh, they can, you know, just relax in the room with their families. But yeah, it's a it's a beautiful yeah. building. It's a really beautiful space and a really great space to to give birth in. And they deliver in the garden? <laughs> I haven't had anybody ask me that yet. Okay. I'm sure that is coming. I'm sure someone is going to want to squat out there in the garden. Okay. And I'm going to guess that, you know, us being as accommodating as we are, that we're going to say yes. I'm going to hope that they want to be inside, though. But yeah, yeah. No one's asking that yet, Stephanie. <laughs> what are you most proud of with the work that Choices is doing? And what do you think that your greatest challenge has been with um, kind of establishing the birth center? Yeah, I think that what I'm most proud of is our ability to provide mm-hmm. this care for the most vulnerable community in Memphis. We have patients a lot of times that are coming up to three hours away because they don't have this type of care in their community. So I think that I'm proud that we have this opportunity. I'm always humbled to take care of people. It's an amazing feeling to to care for people and to be a part of their story. Yeah. And now I feel like we're right. all family. We have this huge village of yeah. children out there that <laughs> come back to see me pretty regularly. Mm-hmm. I, I see all of these children. I mean, I see all of these parents. They, they send me text messages and pictures. And actually, one was in the building today volunteering. I saw her. I'm like, oh, hey, how you doing? She's like, I'm here to volunteer. Okay, okay, here, come on in, you know. So I think that that is probably the most rewarding thing to see people have the birth experience they want for them to feel empowered mm-hmm. for them to recognize the power in their body and that they can really do anything right so that's yeah I would say that was probably the most rewarding work the most challenging huh that's a good question I think the most challenging really is in challenging the legislation mm-hmm. around being able to practice you know to our full scope and our full authority. I think that the limitations that uh, midwives and advanced practice nurses experience in terms of these laws that bind us to bind us and bind the type of care and practice that we can do is just very restrictive and it's not hurting anybody but the community. I think that that's very hard for me. I think that because of the fight 
that brings me to reproductive justice and reproductive health work. I feel like we're always challenging archaic policies. And so that's a hard part for me. <laughs> so the patient care is not hard. The laws and really working to protect people's reproductive rights and autonomy and reprodu- their reproductive destiny is always probably the hardest part of my work. So Stephanie, I didn't mean to monopolize the conversation, but is there anything that you wanted to ask Dr. Grayson about? Oh, Dr. Grayson knows I'm, <laughs> I have a girl crush on her. She's my biggest midwifery crush. I want to go to Mexico. So and <laughs> he's so funny. Stephanie knows. Stephanie knows that, you know, I'm just a look. Listen, Stephanie's been doing this a long time. I'm a baby midwife, right? And uh, I call on, you know, her and Ebony Marcel. She's another Black midwife in DC. And Ebony said to me recently, Oh, why didn't you go out for X, Y, and Z? I was like, Emmy, I'm a baby midwife, right? She's like, <laughs> your only baby in years. She said, what you have done and what you've experienced is a uh, Dr. You know, Grayson has accomplished in a short amount of time is phenomenal. Yeah, phenomenal. Yeah. That was yeah, yeah. I I totally concur. I was amazed by the work that's being done and one of the hardest hit cities, you know, as it relates to, you know, maternal mortality and, and, and morbidity. And I just, I just think you're such a gift to the community, you know, and there's so much that we can learn from you in terms of building those partnerships. Cause honestly, I'm a, you know, maternal fetal medicine physician at a, at a large academic institution and a lot of times there's a lot of head banging. What are we going to do? Maternal mortality, it's, you know, it's disparities mm-hmm. and this, that, and that. And I think that the heart of the solution is really building the bridges with trusted pillars of the community and listening to our community partners and really engaging really the, the, the pioneers at the grassroots level. So I think too long we have We've tried to kind of be, and when I say we, I mean sometimes as as the large academic institution have not always engaged the community as as the center of of the solution, you know. And I think building those bridges is really what's going to make the difference. So I yeah, just, I, I love the work that you're I, doing. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. You know, I think that. You know, like I said, my background was different and, you know, I have a master in public health and I decided to do public health after going to (laughs) West Africa with my best friend and seeing some some conditions there that were just alarming. But when I studied public health, I found it was very a really top down approach to to care and community. And I was like, wait a minute, this is not what I want to do, you know, and so, which is why I did anthropology. And I found anthropology was like this bottom-up grassroots approach. And that was what I was looking for, because I always believed that the answers resided in the community and recognized recognized that the power was in the community and that if we could not get the community on board, then it was not going to happen. We can create the best interventions or anything, you know, hospitals. We, it just wasn't going to work if we could not get them on board. And so I always love to talk to community and listen to their stories and recognize that they really were the expert experts. Mm-hmm. We had a skill and a tool and right. they had the knowledge. And so how mm-hmm. could we partner to make that happen? But I'm really thankful for the patients who trust me, you mm-hmm. know, because that's that's a that's a big part of it, you know. That mm-hmm. they trust me and they trust that I will do right by them and give them my best every day. And I do. I wake up every day and work hard to give them my best. But this community, it is sick, right? We do see a lot of sick people. And uh that's why I said to me, you know, high risk is relative at mm-hmm. this point because everybody's high risk, right? And so you know, when I get a call like, oh, she has gestational diabetes. Does that rule her out of care? 
was like, can we talk about it? Can we talk about, you know, issue on medication? Is it diet control? You know, so we then have to make a new plan. And I think that that ability to adjust and make a new plan is always important as well. And so, yeah, I get it, though. I mean, your work is hard. So so you are MFM also, right? You said. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I promise you, Danielle Tate is a rock star. OK, she <laughs> is a rock star. I love Danielle Tate. I actually texted her today. She had a birthday on the 18th and uh, I meant to call her. I didn't get to call her. I just let her know. I was thinking about her, but she is probably one of the most humble people, but brilliant. She's absolutely brilliant and she's always there and she's always helpful. And, and I'll tell her, I was like, Tate, this is what we're seeing. This is what I'm seeing. This is what the patient is experiencing. She was like, Okay, well, what is it you want to do? <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm like, wait a minute, don't ask me. You know, or <laughs> we had this one patient who <laughs> I sent her to Tate so that Tate could tell her she couldn't have an out of hospital birth. They called me, she was like, she can have an out of hospital birth. No, no, don't tell her that. <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't tell her that, Dr. Tate. She said, like, What do you want me to tell her? So, you know, it's really, it is yeah. a partnership, and we do have a, a lot of trust and respect for each other and um mm-hmm. but I think that that is what it's going to take for us to really to bridge this gap that we are seeing in terms of OB and uh, midwifery care and like I said the the laws I'm not from Tennessee and many of the things that they're experiencing here were really strange to me right because I was like Okay, this is the most backwards place and thing that I've ever seen. So, but it's home now, and I've found community and purpose here. And uh, I'm going to keep doing it till I can't do it anymore. I decide mm-hmm. to go back and get another degree and do something else. I can't say that too loud because my husband and children do not want to do that. <laughs> uh, they were like, after five degrees, that's enough. But yeah, no, I think this is this is it, and I'm gonna. This is where I'm going to finish my work, hopefully at Choices. You know, I, mm-hmm. I want to work myself out of a job there. So, yeah. 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 You got to come see the clinic. Well, I would love to. I, yeah, would come on. Love to. I think we yeah. should plan yeah. that, Rolanda. Yeah, we can call. Yeah. Bring Amanda with me. Amanda, come on Yes. And I'm going to sit out <laughs> yeah. in the garden and pray somebody delivers. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. You know? No, no, let's not do that. Let's not do that. <laughs> I promise you, when we put that out there, I was like, what are we doing? Why are we encouraging people to be in this area? Oh, I was I was intrigued because I'm a hobby gardener myself. And I am I, too. I love gardening. Yeah, I garden a lot. Uh-huh. Yeah. So the the healing that comes from gardening, you know, it's it amazing. makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. It is amazing. And you know, I'm a city girl. And I grew yeah. up in the city, uh, but but my mother's from North Carolina, and so I would spend literally every summer with my grandmother, who was had this huge garden. Right? Exactly. I mean, and when I say garden, I'm not talking about a little, I'm talking about acres. I mean, just acres and acres. And so when I was young, I hated it because she would make me like shuck corn and shell peas and all that stuff. I was like, I don't want to do this. I'm a city girl. I don't, you know, I love my grandmother, but I didn't enjoy doing it. The food was great. And she died in 2005. And when I tell you that I was devastated, I was devastated because her mother had died the year before. So I thought I had her as long as I had my great grandmother. Right. Right. And and so I started gardening after that. And my aunt all told me they were like, your grandmother would be so proud of you because it made me feel closer to her. And so even that now, so yeah. crazy. My grandmother garden too. And yeah, she died. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that's awesome. So. It just, it just made me feel closer to her. And even yeah. so, even now, 16 years later, I still have a garden. My husband yeah. and I were just cleaning it out the other day because I, now I'm, I do raise beds. I'm not going to get no tiller out and start, you know, doing nothing like that. But, but yet I think about her every day and in yeah. some capacity. And, and so, yeah, I love the garden too. So I told him I was going to put some tomatoes out there. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it's it's beautiful though. Yeah. You you all should just come up and let me know when you come. And then you yeah. Come yeah. We'll definitely mm-hmm. do we'll like that trip. We'll like that yeah. Trip. 
Well, we will we will leave it there. Thank you so much, Dr. Grayson and Dr. Devane Johnson, for the awesome work of midwifery and how explaining how that model of care can make a huge impact on our most vulnerable women in our community. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, presented by TipQC. TipQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic, or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.